Today, we explore that exciting period where the owner of Marvel Comics actually started a rival company, a rival comic company, because he was upset with how he was treated after he sold Marvel Comics. Yes, this happened. This guy got the best comic book talent, the biggest names. He paid them twice as much. He set up a rival company to compete with Marvel. Exciting new talents, exciting new titles. I was there, I was grabbing them off the spinner rack as a child. 1974 is chock full of incredible history and incredible lessons that we are gonna explore today with the history of Atlas Comics on an all new Observations. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld, I have written, produced, illustrated, uh, published, even even printed the comic books over my 37-year career in this amazing business. Rob's observation exists to connect all of the uh, the, the 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 cords that, that that unite pop culture and comic books. All of the extensions that 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 connect the toys on the toy shelf, the video games, the console games. The digital downloadable games. I mean, there's app games. Everything has superheroes, superheroes, DC, Marvel, independent characters. You got Walking Dead. I mean, you, you've got the boys. You, you, we've, we've gone so far beyond Marvel and DC. Your streaming platforms, your movies, you know, and I have watched it all burst forth uh, and develop and, and, uh, and seriously evolve over the course of my comic book journey that I've been taking you on here for several years and it started when I was seven years old seven years old will put you uh, squarely in 1974 and and that is uh, going to have a lot of resonance with today's a lot of the topics that we're going to put forth today this show unfortunately is not where you come to get uh, each and every episode of she-Hulk parsed, dissected, or any other Marvel show. I had to admit this uh, a while back, and, and if this causes you to, you know, uh, uh, disconnect, and maybe this isn't the show that you want, well, here's the deal. I, I have not watched or interacted with a Marvel television show uh, beyond about 20 minutes of the She-Hulk pilot. Not that I didn't want to watch it anymore. I just haven't had time, and and and, and so much has been uh, accounted for, but I... I uh, did not finish Moon Knight. I did not see Doctor Strange uh, in the theaters or at all. I did not see Thor in the theaters or at all. I did not see Ms. Marvel. I did not see What If. And I have not seen uh, She-Hulk. I have, uh, there's probably another one in there. I just have not had any time. It reminds me of the time when Marvel was publishing so much that I just had to cut back in terms with what I interacted with. I had a very busy summer and was just not able to get around um, if I were to see Dr. Stranger Thor, that would have been cutting into another viewing of Top Gun Maverick. And there was no way that was going to happen. You think that's tongue in cheek, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe slightly, but I had my priorities. Okay. Here's the deal though. Over the course of time, since I was seven years old, whether it was the Super Friends cartoon, whether it was the Spider-Man cartoon, which then turned into the Spider-Man and his amazing friends, uh, 
all the different incarnations of the Justice League that came around, the Batman animated series, the X-Men series in 1992, the all of the different attempts. I mean, there was a Generation X movie. There was a Mutant X TV show. Do you guys remember these in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s? You know, all the way to the first X-Men movie, the 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 first Spider-Man films, the the formation of the MCU with 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 Robert Downey Jr. These don't seem like they were yesterday anymore. They they now seem far away. When when, when I I brought my sons to see the debut of Iron Man in 2008, my oldest was not yet eight; uh, he was still seven, and my uh, youngest son was five and, 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 you know, my daughter is four and, and we weren't really bringing her to any cinema at the time. So I just took my two boys, uh, on that Thursday night preview and was completely blown away that they pulled Iron Man off. And of course, so were many of you and we, it really kicked, kickstarted this age, but you don't get to, you don't get to raising the financing for the Iron Man movie without X-Men 2000. Okay. I'm not going to have this argument with you guys about Blade. Uh, my friends made Blade. My friends were executives on Blade at New Line. It was bought as a horror slash Marvel chiller, thriller, and most importantly, a vampire film. It was most certainly not sold as a superhero feature. And I have done um, quite a few different podcasts on just walking you through in real time. It's not uh, it's not prejudice against Blade. It's not um, uh, anything other than the cold hard facts. What's happened is a recency bias that wants to see it recognized in a manner that it did not belong, which was some sort of uh, influence. And and people say it kickstarted, it, you know, kicked open the door for the Marvel Universe. No, it didn't. That most certainly was not the case. Uh, again, just a real quick bit. The, the Batman and Robin, which came out in 1997, was seen as the death knell for comic book superhero films because all that, that, that the studios were, were uh, trusting the only one, only franchise they had faith in was the Batman movie because the Batman films kept making so much money. And, you know, the last Batman film, even though that I didn't like it prior to Batman and Robin was the Jim Carrey vehicle with the Riddler with Val Kilmer as, uh, as Batman. I, you know, was that Batman forever? It, it escapes me. I just know that, uh, you know, first two are Keaton, then Kilmer, then Clooney, then, then over for a while. And that actually really stopped it stopped development on so many superhero comic book movies because studios just said oh well you know they won't take batman seriously anymore they won't take any of these other titles that in their minds no one had heard of blade uh wesley snipes was a big time a-list movie star especially his action films especially his action vehicles he couldn't secure Black Panther. He pivoted into Blade. Blade had a really a horror film budget, a pretty big horror thriller vampire film budget, um, and 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 they 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 went full into into production on that, uh, I- incorporating him as an action hero in this world of uh, backdrop of vampire and horror, which has a built-in audience. I mean, every week this last weekend, Smile followed on the heels of a couple weeks ago, uh, Bar- Barbarian, and. Uh, you know, all we all, uh, I think there was a movie called Black Phone uh, earlier this summer. That, that we always have horror makes money. Jason Bloom has uh, made an entire, you know, uh, uh, J- Jason Bloom has, has created an entire company, you know, portfolio uh, 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 label based on very moderately budgeted horror films. So again, that's what Blade was. 
the success of Blade, and it was moderate, but it was very much a success, did not suddenly find other movies going into production of the superhero realm. That didn't happen. You know, what happened is that the X-Men finally got pushed forth uh, in, in, in from its production that it had had for multiple years, and the budget on that kept shrinking. Had the had the Blade model been true, had this had this had this Blade let's call it the Blade mythology, that Blade suddenly kicked down doors and, and opened them for for superhero movies, then X Men would have gotten a much bigger budget instead of the the, the Fox executives, you know, that, who kept trimming it from ninety to eighty five to eighty to seventy five to seventy two million dollars. That original Hugh Jackman. James Marsden, Fomke Jensen, Patrick Stewart X-Men, the one that came out in 2000, was extremely low budget for a superhero film. They had to figure out how to do a whole lot of stuff through just cheaper means, through, you know, clever camera work, through a low budget uh, special effects, you know, um, um, account. I mean, it's it's just, uh, it, it the success of X-Men and the, and the box office that it created Absolutely kicked down the doors. Absolutely. Um, the, uh, you know, absolutely just rocketed comic book development. Spider-Man, you know, more X-Men films. X-Men 2, see, X-Men 2 got a much bigger budget. Well, now we're talking $130 million, almost a $50 million bump from the original on the basis of that. And that was, I, I you know, the X-Men... 2000 is the movie that made everybody feel okay. I've covered it here before, and I'm going to tell you, and I have told Will, I have told, <laughs> I almost called him Wolverine, I have told the esteemed, accomplished, amazing Hugh Jackman to his face within an inch of him, backstage at his amazing Greatest Showman production that was right before the pandemic. I said, you're the reason that the MCU happened. If we don't love Wolverine and Wolverine was the most popular character in the world when the X-Men came out. If you don't believe me, you want to argue with me about Batman? No, the X-Men cartoons had primed an entire generation. The X-Men cartoon on Saturday morning was number one and there was nothing even close. It was number one going away. The numbers on the X-Men cartoon were, were incredible. Wolverine was the star. A generation that did not know him from comic books now knew him from the cartoon show, and then the toys and all the subsequent licensing that went along with it. Finding Wolverine, nailing Wolverine, having Wolverine work on screen as well as it did with Hugh Jackman in that original X-Men 2000 was the, wow, a star is born. I mean, immediately Hugh was booking films and roles all over the all over the place. He had Meg Ryan films. He had all manner of, um, he, he's, he's in films with John Travolta and Halle Berry outside of X-Men. I mean, this guy went A-list overnight. That is the mark of influence and success. And I told you, without you, there is no MCU. I know people love to give Robert Downey Jr. the, the credit. Bullshit. It's Hugh Jackman. If Wolverine doesn't work, if X-Men doesn't happen, if the audience doesn't show up, we're done. That There is nothing moving forward. Everyone who, has had, who had comic book projects in the pipeline was holding their breath, uh, very anxious to know whether X-Men was going to work. I was fortunate enough to get an early screening, and it blew my mind. I actually did not intent on starting this podcast going in this direction. But while we're talking about it, yes, some of you were like, how come you didn't talk about this last week? Look, Deadpool 3 did get announced. Hugh Jackman has decided to put back the clause. It is a self-fulfilling prophecy in the end credits of X-Men 2 when we revisit, you know, X-Men uh, Origins from 2009. Um, yeah, I didn't mean X-Men 2. Uh, I, uh, Deadpool 2, the, it, is a, it is a fulfillment of prophecy at the end of Deadpool 2. 
when we, at the end credits, go into X-Men Origins from 2009 and when Wolverine Hugh first sees uh, the ab- aborted, you know, uh, what an abortion of, uh, uh, an abomination of Deadpool that emerged with Ryan and his mouth sewn shut and uh, Hugh has his, you know, telltale response and prepares to battle him and then our Deadpool, the true Deadpool, comes through and Ryan, in, fa- in effect, shoots himself as the abomination of a Deadpool and says, hey, look, in the future, you're going to want to hang up your claws <laughs> and uh, and I'm going to ask you to put them, put them back on and join me and you're going to say yes. And today, that's the world we live in. And so Hugh Jackman, the original, the 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 icon of Marvel Comics as far as I'm concerned. And here's the, here's the kicker. When you look at the uh, response and so many of you did and have... And whether it was on my whatnots or on my tw- uh, uh, broadcasts, my uh, the, uh, I'm on an app called Whatnot. It's a collectible app, and, and it's kind of a live stream. Whether it's through that that feedback on both the Wednesday and Saturday shows that we did, or on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, you guys have come with all of your love and all of your support and all of your excitement and excitement. And everyone feels it. We all feel it. I feel it. I'm so happy for you guys. So many of you guys were down in the dumps, down in the dumps. Uh, after D23, trust me, I had to emerge from a presentation with Marvel, Lucasfilm, and uh, and Fox, who gave us the killer Avatar uh, 2 footage. I had to emerge from that knowing, because I went in knowing. I knew, I tried to tell people, I even, again, timestamp my tweets. I'm like, there's not going to be anything from Deadpool. Please stop. Like, don't get your hopes up. But people uh, thought, man, who knows? Maybe this is it. Maybe it's going to come out. Maybe it's going to happen. And it didn't happen. There was no Ryan Reynolds. There was no Deadpool announcement. And I went immediately to a signing. Uh, the good people at Box Lunch, an affiliate of Hot Topic, had hosted me. Hundreds of people uh, had 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 reserved their, their their spot in line. And I signed for over two hours. And I'm going to tell you, every single person was Liefeld, Liefeld. Oh, why no Deadpool news? Is Deadpool 3 happening? And You know, I tried to reassure people, you guys, keep the faith, keep the faith. I know from behind the scenes, I know what's going on. I know what's com- coming. I just can't tell you. I would get, you know, again, destroyed, murdered, and uh, and 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 the, the 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 secret Marvel militia would have made me disappear. So, but then you got it. You guys got the news, and it's it's Hugh Jackman, and it's it's Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds back as Deadpool in his capacity capacity as probably contributing to the screenplay, definitely producing the movie, uh, obviously starring as Wade and Deadpool. Rejoined. Now he's sto- he's restored. He's the Deadpool we've always wanted him to be, and he's with. Hugh Jackman, who's going to put on the claws again, restore himself as Wolverine. And, you know, the great thing is, again, Logan takes place far enough in the the future that this will be a story that takes place before that. And it'll all work out just fine and dandy and good. And it won't conflict with Logan. But um, I'm so glad that you guys uh, showed the love. And again, this is part of the, when we talk of Blade and its 1998, you know, late summer premiere, and, and its success as a, as a vampire thriller horror film. It had a Marvel branding on it, absolutely. So did the Generation X TV movie. So did the Mutant X uh, television show that was syndicated, where they were kind of like Mission Impossible with mutants, okay? A lot of stuff had the Marvel label. But it was the X-Men that, that broke down the door, and, and it's so great that the icon of the MCU, Hugh Jackman, Wolverine, is, is, is reteaming with, I think, one of the... I mean, come on, Deadpool is megawatt hot, two R-rated movies that did 
I mean, I, th I think it's $1.6 billion. So it's a lot. They, they connected. They put a lot of asses in the seats. Okay. So I'm excited. You guys wanted me to mention it. I'm mentioning it. Here you go. I said 1974 was going to be a big year. I'm going to tell you why. And I'm, I'm, again, we, we don't parse through episodes of any Marvel shows or even Star Wars shows. I may mention stuff that excites me every once in a while, but we are not a episode of the week review show. Um, I am trying to walk you through and with my special lens from the, the seat that I've had, um, you know, optioning films and working alongside Tom Cruise for several years, Will Smith for several years, Steven Spielberg for several years, getting to learn the business without actually having the fruits of these movies getting made. Because again, there was a terrible fear um, of, of these of, of comic book movies, you know, getting into a business that no one in Hollywood understood. The one thing Kevin Feige has done above and all else is kind of teach people how to make a, a successful comic book movie, whether they listen or not. He has definitely shown the way he has got, you know, enough under his belt that he has definitely, you know, most, most assuredly, you know, showed people there is a successful path with which to, you know, make this happen. And, uh, and it, it, the accomplishments that he has created, Mr. Feige has created are just, um, they're, they're just enormous. They're, they're incredible. Today, there was a Wakanda forever, a brand new trailer as, as we continue to build on the footage that they showed us at uh, San Diego Comic-Con, the big, you know, awesome Wakanda Forever trailer that was shown that, that, that turned everyone's heads, that blew everyone away. We got an, an exclusive uh, about eight eight minute scene from it in D23. It continues to me, for me to be, I think, the biggest movie Marvel will be releasing and it could challenge uh, Top Gun. I think it's going to eventually at the end of the year, we're going to be looking at a top three that, 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 that is somewhat, that is Top Gun. Wakanda Forever and Avatar Two; those are the, those are your three big uh, top films of 2022, and rightfully so. I think they're all going to be really entertaining, well made. They all have pedigree behind them. Whether it's um, Ryan Coogler, whether it's the esteemed James Cameron, or you know, obviously, uh, you know, Joseph Kaczynski, the director of Top Gun, Macquarie, and Cruise, in their capacity as writer, producer, star of Top Gun Maverick. So anyway. Wakanda Forever comes out, gives us more of Prince Namor. If you guys have um, listened to my previous episodes, you know that one of the um, seminal events in my life is when I was able to trade my Richie Rich and Casper the Friendly Ghost comics to my barber, uh, Fred, Fred the Barber, rest in peace, Fred. When I was, you know, a young lad of seven years old in 1974 to get his Fantastic Four 147, which had Namor blasting out of the water to battle the Human Torch and the thing, both perched on like a rock in the middle of the water. It is still one of the most exciting covers, one of the most exciting comics I've ever read. It is Rich Buckler. It is, uh, he is tearing it up. It is an exciting, amazing, battle-filled, action-filled, drama-filled filled issue of the Fantastic Four. I loved Prince Namor from that moment on. I gave him my heart. That character has always uh, been one that I adore and I love. I love the portrayal of Namor so far in the Wakanda stuff. I am here for all of the Namor-related stuff. The... Um, his nemesis in the comics, and I'm, I'm certain we will watch uh, Atuma. His name's A-T-T-U-M-A. -T -T -A. It sounds like Arnold Schwarzenegger saying Atuma, Atuma in 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 in, uh, in Kindergarten Cop, but it's it's literally pronounced Atuma, and uh, and this big blue bulky uh, warlord that battles against Namor Submariner in the comic books is featured in the uh, in in the trailers, and I was able to meet the actor portraying him. Very large. 
uh, physical presence. I think he's going to be fantastic. I, he probably is going to have a rift with Namor and try and take half the kingdom away from him. They're both going to be, uh, you know, obviously take issue with Wakanda and, and, and have some skirmishes, if not a full-out, all-out conflict with them. But Namor is one of the key, one of the original Marvel uh, tent poles. Uh, and, and, and in the 70s, as I've covered before, he was the face of a team book called The Invaders. He was the face of a team book called The Defenders. So they had a team book with Namor in World War II fighting alongside Captain America, Bucky Human Torque. They also had a modern-day comic where he was alongside Doctor Strange and the Hulk and sometimes Silver Surfer called The Defenders. He also had his own series, beautifully illustrated, amazingly uh, uh, depicted by the, the one of the Mount Rushmore artists of all time, John Buscema. And uh, that, that, that was a long-running series. Then he was starring in the 70s when I'm reading these comics in 1974, 1975. He got his own book alongside Dr. Doom, the two of them. These two giant Fantastic Four kind of uh, nemesis got their own book, and it was called Super Villain Team-Up. So seriously casting him in the role of a villain, except in the book he was constantly kind of torn by his relationship and alliance with Dr. Sh- Dr. Doom and always um, kind of scheming how he could outwit, outlast, and outmaneuver Dr. Doom. So you kind of had a little bit of cat and mouse going on. Namor is a big deal. He's a big character. He's been um, depicted by some of the greats, by John Buscema, by John Byrne, by George Perez, written by all manner of, of great writers, um, illustrated by just the top flight guys in the business. So when I see Namor, I go to 1974. I go to Fantastic Four 147. I go to that trade captain, uh, my Casper the Friendly Ghosts, my Richie Rich. I had to have it. We swapped it. I got it. I coveted it. I, I, I've, I've got multiple copies of Fantastic Four 147 now because I just, I love it that much. But something else happened in 1974. And that actually... Uh, is going to have a connection to this section uh, called Rob Recommends. I'm going to try and make this a regular sec, uh, a regular feature on the show, Rob Recommends, and I am literally going to try and send you down the best, very possible path you could possibly uh, you know, go down in regards to um, getting a, maybe a comic book that you have never had or comic books. In this case today, it is a one-shot. Now, Dominic Fortune has ties to 1974. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Dominic Fortune is a creation of the writer-artist that I have given so much acclaim to, especially as we have come into focus in the latter part of this year, to Mr. Howard Chaikin, or as others called him, Howie Chaikin. He of American Flag, one of the most influential comics of our age. You don't get to Dark, Dark Knight. You don't get to Frank Miller's Dark Knight. You don't get to Alan Moore's Watchmen. You don't get to so much what happened in comic books without the seminal work of Mr. Howard Chaikin. Well, prior to American Flag and kind of on his way out as he was leaving comics to go do animation, movie, storyboards, um, and he would come back in 1983 with American Flag, Howard uh, walked out the door. Um, I mean, honestly, Marvel Premiere is a magazine uh, that, that Marvel started doing in the in the mid-'70s. And uh, it was a lot of one-shots or two-shots, two-issue episodes, kind of to give uh, some of their CD list characters or new characters kind of flight, debut them or feature them in a way that maybe, you know, it would give you a chance to interact and decide, hey, I really like this character. And maybe if you like that two issues that they did with Torpedo or those, um, you know, spotlights they did on Man-Wolf or, you know, they gave Falcon 
you know, a showcase. I mean, Falcon went on from his Marvel premiere sh- showcase to get a four-issue uh, miniseries in the early 80s. So so sometimes this is a launch pad. They were testing. They were like, well, would, would, will people like, you know, these issues featuring 3D Man? Or will people like this Prowler spotlight? Will people like this, you know, again, all, all these different um, comics that I'm going to eventually cover over time. One of the single best episodes features of Marvel premiere was a standalone issue number 56. It is written and drawn by Howard Chaikin, and it and it uh, it is uh, inked by the greatest embellisher inker of all space and time, Terry Austin, who who had you know made the most spectacular work with Mister John Byrne over a epic run that continues to inspire people on the Uncanny X Men. Terry was seen as the best, the cream, the single most influential most refined, most um, most popular, just flat out, most popular inker. Um, he's the only guy that the editor-in-chief of Jim Shooter, J- Jim, editor-in-chief of Marvel, Mr. Jim Shooter, claimed that if Terry Austin inked a cover, sales would go up. If fans saw his name, and I can attest to that. He inked this issue, Marvel premiere number 56, and it features Dominic Fortune. Now, Dominic Fortune has a little bit of a history, which I'm going to dive into in a minute, but this is part of my Rob Recommends. Get it? It is written and penciled, and... Uh, uh, story plotted by Howard Jake and his friend David Michelini provided the script. Dominic Fortune is, uh, so this is a year before, and, and trust me, Dominic Fortune's inspirations go back to 1974, which I'm going to cover here. Both connected, both produced, both both created, generated from the brilliant mind and imagination of Howard Chaikin. Uh the, the, the character is set in 1938. This special, published in 1980, Marvel premiere number 56, takes place in 1938, so it features some of the Marvel characters running around in 1938, chief being Nick Fury's best buddy and second-in-command in his Howling Commandos and later would go on to service him, serve him uh, alongside him in S.H.I.E.L.D. is Dum Dum Dugan. So Dum Dum Dugan is alongside... Dominic Fortune. Dominic Fortune is, again, a year before Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, Howard Shakin said that the inspiration for this character was all the pulp characters that he grew up loving, the Doc, Doc Savage, Shadow, and the Phantom. And you can see it. Dominic Fortune is an adventurer. He's got a cool uh, brown leather and black kind of combo costume. He is very much in an Indiana Jones, Doc Savage mold, but this is a year and a half before you're going to see Indiana Jones. So this is really... Um, ahead of its time, Dominic Fortune. Great name, right? This issue is a fantastic romp. It opens with an action scene. It opens with characters punching and kicking, and then it uh, we we we, we uh, it has it has zeppelins. It has all the earmarks of uh, of, of 1938 kind of uh, serialized action adventure. So brilliantly, beautifully inked and embellished and crispy. Just so the sheen on these pages. Terry Austin knows how to finish a page like none other. Um, I mean, there's, there's just, it's just nonstop, crazy great action. You can hear me pulling the pages. This is always on my spinner rack. It is uh, because it's a one shot. I nestle it some so it, whether whether I have my Captain Americas featured or my Fantastic Fours or my X Men or my Defenders or my Spider Mans. I always have Dominic Fortune up there because I want to reach this quickly because I just love it. It's a great one-issue spectacle. Dominic Fortune, uh, oh my gosh, great action here. Just Dominic Fortune, great storytelling, very much reads like a, a mini-movie. 
uh, again, uh, has ties. Dum Dum Dugan from S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, Dominic Fortune is, is, uh, takes you on this great adventure in 1938. Uh, Dominic Fortune would go on to appear in other comics as guest stars uh, and, and, and be in some of the other Marvel magazines. But this was kind of uh, Howard Shakin's... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it Howard Shakin's settling the score. And now we're going to get into what exactly does that settling the score means. But by all means, under Rob Recommends, it is a just beautiful 22, 23-page... Uh, uh, action, adventure, thriller, 1938, you know, a kind of a uh, precursor to all things, an adventurer, uh, dashing, leading, handsome guy with a gun, uh, the ladies love Dominic, great name, Dominic Fortune, I mean, when I saw this, it's just, it's so exciting, the cover alone, you'll be like, great, it's, it's probably affordable, super affordable, Marvel premiere number 56, tons of talent. Howard Jake and David Michelini, Terry Austin. You don't want to miss out on this. This is in my Rob Recommends corner. We're going to do this all the time. I'm going to, I'm going to try and focus on, you're going, to, you're going to hear, newsflash, you're going to get a lot of Marvel premiere stuff because between Marvel Spotlight, Marvel premiere, and some of the other Spotlight books that DC and Marvel did, there's just amazing, amazing stuff that, that really, I can't do an entire episode on, but I can give it to you in a Rob Recommends corner and there it is but what is the secret of dominic fortune why is he tied into this today's big subject which is atlas seaborn comics on the on the cover they say atlas comics but uh you know the 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 official the the official moniker i mean you, you didn't have it on the cover because it was owned by a different corporation but but the secret the secret to Atlas, okay, and it, it's going to really, uh, ho- hopefully you don't know much about Atlas, and hopefully this will be your your first excursion into this world, and <laughs> we, we uh, Seaboard, I said Seaborn, Seaboard, Atlas Seaboard, Periodicals was the, was, the, was the technical name, but this is the world of 1974. A man named Martin Goodman, who not that you are terribly aware. Some of you much better versed in this will know his name. He owned Marvel Comics for decades. Under his ownership, it was Timely Comics. It briefly was called Atlas. It had Atlas, Atlas Comics, predates Marvel Comics in terms of the label. Uh, but then they abandoned Timely and Atlas and settled on Marvel, and there was no looking back. Well, forecasting into the future and looking that the comic book industry was on shaky ground and in the world of 1972, 1973, 1974, comic books were losing their distribution. I've talked to you about my own adventures in all my different distribution networks. Once again, very clearly, grocery stores, almost every grocery store had some comic books. Drug stores had some comic books. Your best uh, bet was a really well-stocked liquor store or a 7-Eleven. Out here in Southern California, we had um, other 7-Eleven knockoffs called Stop and Go and also You Totem. You Totem, Stop and Go, 7-Eleven, all of the same designed uh, corner market. Stop and Go and You Totem literally were 7-Elevens just with different, you know, mastheads. There was actually <laughs> a, a guy who bought a couple of 7-Elevens and called them 7-12s. Yes, in Fullerton and Buena Park, there were 7-12s in, in Orange County here where I grew up. But anyway... That is how most of us encountered comics in your in your uh, department stores. 
like Sears and, and a company called May Company and uh, one called Montgomery Wards and then it, one of my favorite called Gemco. Gemco was the target of the 70s. There was Gemcos all over Southern California. I believe it was a Southern California-based uh, company. Many of the Gemcos were bought out and, and refurbished uh, as either targets or uh, or Walmarts. That's it. Got to blank it real quick there while I was thinking of the word Walmart. So so the Gemco uh, you know, retail facilities just were reborn as as different new retail you know, the, you know, all-encompassing retail outlets. And you would, in the book section and the magazine section of the Gemco's or the Montgomery Wards or the Sears, there would be a rack of pre-packed comics. They were three to a pack. Other editors and people at the time, we, we, we've all talked, you know, they, they, were, they were pre-packaged. They had a cardboard kind of seal label at the top the hook that they could put on a spinner rack, but the spinner rack, uh, actually it wasn't a spinner rack like comics that, that, that held comics. It was a, just a rack like you would hang clothes on, but these had a hole in it so that you could put them on, you know, the different, uh, the different just plain old racks. And if you wanted it, you pulled it off the rack and then you, you looked through the three package seal to see like, is there something I, you, you could always see the book on in the front and the book in the back. They, they were both facing you, but there was like, what are you getting in the middle? Exactly. What am I purchasing? What am I getting in the middle here? You know, that, that was, that was the question. And if you could just, just carefully with your thumbs pinch without, without hurting that, that, that front cover, that back cover. And, and, and cause, cause you had to figure out which, which, which book is it behind? Cause if it's facing you then it, and it's behind the defenders 50. Okay. You see it's a spectacular Spider-Man. Great. Then on the other side, it's uh, it's an issue of Fantastic Four. Boom! I'm buying that one because that I want the spectacular Spider-Man one. I don't want the Captain America one or whatever. This is how you choose it. But they were they were um, you know, uh, they were sealed in plastic, and on top was the cardboard label that had the perforated hole that they would then slide onto the racks. And those were generally just two tiered, top tier, lower tier, hanging, dangling, um four four different prongs on the top four on the bottom <clears throat> in in stacks of comics some of them were archie comics some of them were the richie rich casper comics that i talked about so you you know if you were somebody like me and you just wanted the superhero stuff you even your your, your options were even more limited but so in the distribution world of comic books in 1972 1973 1974 75 and it really would plague them the direct market to come in and, and be the cavalry and kind of save the comic book market. Distribution was spotty. You know, X-Men 107 would come out and then I'd get an X-Men 110 and I'd be like, where did 109 go? And then I'd drive all over Orange County via my sister or my dad or my mom, whoever I could bribe to get me to go to another liquor store, another a 7-Eleven in another city. You know, if we were going to my friend Kenneth's to swim, he was up in Buena Park and I'd always go, oh, mom, can we get some snacks at the 7-Eleven before we get, get to Kenneth's? Maybe we'd bring them back chips, but really it was stealth. It was maybe I can find a comic there. And I did oftentimes a Marvel team up on X-Men and Avengers, a Legion of Superheroes that I didn't have because the, the outlets near me didn't. So distribution was spotty when they say that. Just know it. I lived it. Well, I think Martin Goodman thought Marvel's because of the distribution problems. And again, as I've said, 1977, only two years later, Marvel 
which was now owned by Cadence Industry, Martin Goodman, out of the uncertainty of the market and what has become, as I've looked into this, as I've looked into Atlas Seaboard, again, the, the comics say Atlas on them. I have so many of them. Really good logo. And they were the trade dress, the design, the actual look of the comics when you walked into the 7-Eleven, the liquor store, or wherever. It looked like a Marvel comics. Atlas looked like Marvel branding. It just didn't say Marvel. But, but they made sure that the trade dress reflected Marvel. And again, I have firsthand experience because I really, really enjoyed many of Atlas Comics titles. But I did not know at the time that they were a product of the guy who sold Marvel to a company called Cadence Industries. Cadence Industries would buy Marvel Comics Publishing from Martin Goodman because Martin Goodman finally figured he'd cash out, sell a problematic publishing division, and what was happening at this time in the 70s, um, the comic book artists, as you're going to hear, as I'm going to share with you, they were congregating together, getting to know each other, becoming friends, creating their own posses, their own tribes of, of people that they moved amongst. You know, there'd be the, in whatever borough they all lived in, you're going to hear, you know, some of these guys lived across the, you know, the hall from each other. They shared rooms. They, they, they shared, you know, living spaces. And so they'd all talk, talk, what are you making? You know, what's your page rate? And, and the page rates weren't great. Again, if you ask Jack Kirby, why did you do three books a month? He said, I had to pay the rent. I have a family. I make a page rate. I don't get royalties. Royalties didn't exist when Jack was doing Fantastic Four, Thor, Avengers, Iron Man, Captain America, you know, uh, uh, did I say X-Men? I mean, and then later on the entire fourth world of, it's called the fourth world line of comics that he did with, with the new gods and the forever people and Mr. Miracle and the demon and, and OMAC and eventually Commandy. He was making page rate. Make $25 a page, do three pages a day, you're at 75. Throw a color in, cover in there that they, they're paying you $125 for. You know, you've had a good day. This is what Jack did. Jack said I was a workhorse because I had to feed my family. I had to put money on the table. Three books a month, three pages a day, just without fail. Jack Kirby was a powerhouse. So many, so many of these guys couldn't maintain this. So, so, so think that they're getting twenty dollars a page. I've talked to you know Howard Chaykin and Larry Hama and Walt Simonson when they told me oh, I was getting twenty dollars a page. You know, when I'm an inker, I'm getting fifteen dollars a page. Bob Layton, Joe Rubenstein, they were getting fifteen dollars a page. Man, when he got when he got to twenty, an extra five a page. Wow. Well, guys like Neil Adams who were becoming more and more prominent because they had come to fame under comic books under the under in the world of comic books had pivoted because Neil wanted to get paid more for his work. Neil, um, you know, rest in peace. What an amazing man. What an inspiration. Um, a, a friend, a mentor in many ways. Uh, a, just a generous, kind, brilliant Mount Rushmore Hall of Fame uh, talent. Neil was keen to educate other people. He went into advertising and saw, wait, so for doing these storyboards, I'm getting three times my page rate? Because, of course, now you're on, you know, you're on television budgets and you're on movie budgets and you're on commercial budgets. They can afford to pay more for you to actually do less, to do less. You, you, you do less refined work. You don't have to make it, um, fully finished storyboards. Concept art doesn't have the same refined quality as a finished piece of interior comic book page art, comic strip art or comic book cover art. And Neil knew, because he drew some of the best, if not the best faces ever in the business, that if he just kind of nailed those faces and general gestures and hands and arms swinging, that, that people got the gist of what he was doing in terms of storyboard design and uh, 
advertisement uh, that, that, that they were they were thrilled, happy to just uh, throw all the money in the world at him. And they were. His continuity studios grew. And, and so much of it, he supervised storyboards, you know, advertising, advertising art, and he would keep his uh, foot firmly in the comic book world. He influenced other artists. He said, you should be asking for royalties. They should be compensating you. You know, Neil famously backed out of an X-Men project that I've covered in, in some of these, um, I've done some, some podcasts on, on some of the, you know, great, almost comics, some of the greatest comics we never got, uh, he, he turned down at the height of the X-Men under John Byrne and, and, and Chris Claremont. And John Byrne really was so influenced by Neil Adams. Everyone knew it. So he'd get an actual uncanny X-Men story by Neil at the at the height of the popularity that, that John Byrne and, and Terry Austin were, were producing. It was kind of like, you know, major influence on John Byrne and arguably, I mean, not arguably, absolutely the better artist of the two but not dabbling in monthly comics for him to do a graphic novel of the X-Men would have, would have sold, you know, bonkers numbers. Some of those pages leaked out. They were promoted in the comic book fan press. Neil told Jim shooter. I can't have this be work for hire. You're not, I have to be, I have to I have, be, I have to be a partner in this work. There has to be royalties. We have to share it. And Jim said that the powers that be would never support that. They couldn't do it. The deal couldn't be done. And Neil was off the project. It later went on to be uh, God loves man kills. Uh, with Brent Anderson, who did an amazing job. It is a beautiful, gorgeous graphic novel. But, you know, Neil Adams was front and center as the guy who was supposed to do that, and it's just a shame. But Neil was protecting his investment, was protecting the time that he was going to put on the page and wanted to make sure he got the maximum out of it because he had learned from these different media projects that he was on, whether it was storyboards, again, advertisement art, uh, film, television work. So... Neil had been talking to this next generation, everybody in his continuity studios, and that would come down to the Bob Laytons, the Terry Austins, the Dick Giordanos, the Joseph Rubensteins, the Mike Nassers, the Howard Chakins, the Walt Simonsons, the Alan Weisses. I mean, Neil was building quite an, an impression, and apparently Martin Goodman was terrified that Neil was going to unionize the business and have them all ask for page rates for your pencilers, your inkers, your colors across the board and the comic books were going to become too expensive to produce. Remember that as I go down this story with you. Remember that Martin Goodman, one of the reasons he wanted to get out of comics was he he felt like the tide was turning in these new quote-unquote, in quotes, according to Martin Goodman, hippies, this, this new sect of hippie artists who wanted to get more. They wanted to get a share. They wanted to get royalties. They wanted to get more money. That, that it was going to make Marvel less efficient and Marvel was already dropping in numbers because the distribution of comic books was dropping radically. Part of the reason, you know, that the, that the numbers were so bad was that more and more people were not buying comics, less comics. I, I saw 7-Eleven shrink. Their offerings shrunk. And, and you know, it, it, it coincides with this story that we're going to talk about today with Atlas Comics, a part of Seaboard Periodicals. This... When Atlas disappeared, so much else disappeared as well. It was part of the cutback. There is an episode of this podcast series, my podcast series. There is a Rob Observations episode called The DC Implosion. It, it would be great if you could maybe later listen to that. It will give you a great parallel to what's going on during this time because DC, trying to uh, turn the tide around in regards to their own sales, did this ambitious announcement that they were going to increase the number of pages per book, increase the price, and increase the amount of books they were going to do with this 
like eight to 10 to 12 new titles and characters. And immediately, given the cutback and the pricing wars and the distribution um, difficulties, they, they were done. Marvel itself was was bleeding ink all over the place. Star Wars saved them. That is probably my third or seven, uh, seventh, uh, third or or second, third or second podcast. Maybe it's fourth. Um, you know, it's uh, it deals with Star Wars now. Stan didn't want to do it, and I've mentioned it often because it's just such a great story. It's such a great story. But again, these are tumultuous times for DC and Marvel. And Goodman had played a couple of crazy tricks on DC, tricking them into following Marvel's lead when Marvel had no intention of going further on their. Um, their format changes. They just wanted to trick Marvel into following them, which I'm sorry, trick DC into following their lead, which they did to the point where they bought a year's worth of paper um, at the printer at a certain price. And so they couldn't cut their prices when Marvel immediately after announcing after two months that their books were going double and double the price cut back, went back to normal sized comic books and only cut the price back slightly so that Marvel's Profits would soar. This is one of Goodman's last kind of sneaky moves in the early 70s, 1970 to 1972. DC thought, well, we'll follow this. We'll, we'll, we have to keep pace with them. When that happened in 1972, it flipped the script forever. And what Goodman got out of that is DC was no longer the best-selling company. Marvel was. Marvel um, were cheaper comics with a few more pages, not the doubling, and at a better discount. And now all of DC Comics were 60 cents and double-sized. And the retailers uh, were, you know, positioned by the marketing of Marvel as, which, come on, wh- which ones do you want to sell? Which ones are going to do better for you? And and you can buy us cheaper. Literally up until that point, DC was the, uh, the sales leader. I mean, 1967, 68, 69, uh, 70, DC is outselling Marvel, Superman, Batman. They, they, Marvel cannot, even though the Marvel Universe is such an enticing brilliant place sometimes the business moves are what throw you catapult you forward get you more sales to the drug stores to the grocery stores to the mom and pop to the liquor stores to the 7-elevens and so in 1972 they flipped that the, you know it was kind of like martin goodman's last great move and he used those numbers to go shop a deal because again he announced and did for two months double marvel and asked for double the cover price dc said oh we got to follow marvel we can't let them get away with this they're giving more content we'll give 60 pages at 60 cents and then marvel within two months said oh we're going back we're not doing what we'll do 22 page comics instead of 20 page comics and we'll be 20 cents instead of 40 cents but we were at 15 cents so we're getting a nickel more giving you only two pages more and dc had to buy a year's worth chose to buy in bulk and because of the that, that reason alone, they could not cut back their costs. They stuck with it. They lost sales. This Martin Goodman's a wily guy. Again, he he had bought Marvel and controlled Marvel through its timely Atlas Marvel phase. Again, the Atlas Seaboard, they had to add Seaboard into the title inside the Indicia as to not get sued because of the pre or, or, or cause confusion with the existing use of Atlas which Marvel Comics was named at one point, along with Timely. Again, it had multiple titles until they settled on Marvel, and they didn't look back. But uh, Martin Goodman negotiated his deal, sold his deal to Cadence, got out of the business, increasing costs, bad distribution, sold it, kind of did that move that (coughs) 
increase their increase their uh, circulation in in the face of really people scaling back. And what they in essence they did is they took some of that they took some of DC's money and distribution that would have been a lot allocated to them and and convinced retailers with their marketing that you should sell us better. We're, we're, we're giving you a better amount. We're giving you a we're giving you a better product and a better discount. Theirs is bloated and more expensive. What do you think parents, kids are going to buy? And I'm going to tell you, there's some, there's some logic there. Well, he sells, but one of the things that he does in the sale is that he wants his son to stay on in an advisory position on the editorial board. But once the deal is done, Stan Lee ensures, according to all reports, it was Stan that said, get this kid out of here. Martin Goodman's son was kicked to the curb and exited the building. The keys were changed. I mean, it was it was one of those like, don't call us, we'll call you. Um, here's your stuff. There's the door. And apparently Martin Goodwin was enraged, in absolutely enraged at the fact that his son had been so poorly treated by Cadence Industries, who he had um, sold the company to and negotiated this role for his son. So, so really a lot of people refer to the, the, the line of comics that I'm going to tell you about. They refer to them as Martin Goodman's vengeance line or, or they call it vengeance Inc. Because, you know, they, uh, they, 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 they really, I mean, you're going to hear some people who say, yes, absolutely. Um, this was Martin's vengeance line. This was Martin's vengeance line. Uh, one of the uh, guys who was running Atlas for Martin Goodman, you know, asked him, do, do you think this was a, a move? Do you think this was a, do you think Atlas existed out of, out of vengeance? And he said, yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, throughout all of the investigation uh, that you're going to find with Atlas Comics, that is the that is the prevailing notion again and again and again and again and again is that uh, is that Martin Goodman decided I'll show them how dare they treat me my legacy my my son Charles slash Chip they call him Chip how dare they you know mistreat him as they have and again they called it Vengeance Incorporated that was the nickname. And even Howard Chaikin in his interview would, con, con, you know, um, would confirm. So, so when Cadence Industry kicked Chip, Charles Goodman, his son, to the curb, uh, he decided to go head-to-head with Marvel and initiate an all-out war. He said, I'm going to start a rival comic book company and punish these guys. I mean, he just got paid. He just got this money from Cadence. And what he did, what Atlas did, was they went out and they recruited some of the biggest names in the history of comics. They got Stanley's brother, Larry Lieber, who had been working with him, has, who's done the Spider-Man comic strip. You might may have heard of Larry Lieber. I last saw Larry at, at Stan's um, memorial uh, special taped in New York for the AB, ABC network that, that, that aired, uh, I think, November, December of 2019. But it was filmed in New York in a, in a nice little uh, Broadway stage. And Larry was there. Larry Lieber, Stan's brother, Martin said, "I'm, you know, he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna build a competitive model here. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get Stanley's brother. I'm gonna get Stanley's brother because it's Stan Lieber, really not Stanley. He very wisely monikered his own name. So he got Larry Lieber to come over and help him run the book, but business so he could legitimately tell everyone, I've got Stanley's brother running my comic book company. 
and then he went to the guy who, who really had had had, had um, spooked him, scared him about comic books. He went to Neil Adams, and and he said, "Look, let, let, let's get a lot of your continuity guys in here," and that that meant Dick Giordano, that meant Sal Valuto, that meant Pat Broderick, who would go on to do Firestorm, Micronauts, seminal comic books, you know, in the eighties. Uh, Howard Chaikin, Walt Simonson, Larry Hama, the, the, the Mr. G.I. Joe himself. Uh, so, so again, and, and, and did I mention Steve Ditko and Wally Wood, two of the biggest names in the history of comics? I mean, the Daredevil creator, uh, one of the you know absolute contributors to Daredevil, created the Thunder Agents. We did an entire episode on the Thunder Agents. Steve Ditko, uh, one of the most important creators of all time. Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, uh, I, I mean, just Green Goblin, Craven. Lizard, Mysterio, Doc Ock. I mean, where does it end? I mean, Steve Ditko, huge. He comes over. You got so you got Neil Adams. You got Steve Ditko. You got Walt Simonson. You got you got Dick Giordano. You got Larry Hama. You got Pat Broderick. Uh, you know, the, 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 there's guys I'm missing, uh, but it was a murderer's row, like it was an all-star club, and and Martin had promised to pay them twice their page rates in most cases. Even a guy, uh, a, a fairly a, a journeyman of sorts, Al Milgram, said, "Oh, I, I I don't know if I got doubled, but I got I got fifteen dollars a page." Of which Roy Thomas, who was the editor uh, executive at Marvel at the time, had said, "Hey, aren't you going to be loyal?" And he's like, "Come on, man, I can ink a page for you and get fifteen dollars, or ink a page for them and get thirty. I mean, again, uh, page rates were everything. Atlas told people, "Hey, we will give you." We will give you royalties, a piece of your creations. And uh, that was part of it. And here's the big kicker. One of the things that Neil was fighting for the most that neither Marvel or DC had been doing was giving back artwork. There's a reason there's generations of art that did not reach the artist, which then could not be sold into the public because Marvel deemed that their property. DC deemed that their property. Huge problems this caused. I've got an entire episode on how if Dave Cockrum just gets the art he requests back from DC, he doesn't cross the street, go to Marvel, and help launch the single biggest, most successful franchise of the last 40 years, the new X-Men. The guy who created Colossus and Storm and Nightcrawler and had fire. See, these guys, get they get, they get fire in their belly. They get mistreated. Like, well, I'm going to take my talents over here. And they did. Well, now all these talents were taking their talents to Martin Goodwin, who could say, look, I come on, guys, you know me. I ran Marvel. I'm the guy, and here's my new team. My son, Chip, is here. I got Larry Lieber. I got Stan's brother. Apparently, according to Howard Chaikin, their offices were diagonally across the street from the Marvel offices. So he even opens his operations. His, his place of operations is opened across the street from Marvel Comics. And they get Atlas going, and Atlas again. Steve Ditko and Wally Wood would would contribute to one of their best comic books called The Destructor. Now I saw The Destructor. I wandered in. I can see the the, the three p.m. in the afternoon sunlight going through that Seven Eleven. And when I wandered in, and I'm like, that's that's the Spider-Man guy. That's that's also at DC. He had been doing the Creeper, and 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 he had been doing like recognizable comics. I'm like, that's Steve Ditko. That you know, because I'm, I'm learning names. I'm learning guys. The Destructor, it's blue and red. I'll buy it. The one that blew me away. Neil Adams was doing all the covers and some finishes, some inking. He was doing a little bit of everything. He definitely was helping uh, his uh, his familiar, Mister Mister Martin Goodman, 
you know, and taking all the money that he was paying. And look, Neil's a big guy. He's on my Mount Rushmore of comics at the time. You know, his Batman and X-Men and Green Lantern runs are the things of legend. He is maybe the most commercial artist of all space and time already at this at this point, and he hasn't even produced his magnum opus, which is Superman Muhammad Ali, which I've done a dedicated podcast on. Neil Adams was the gold standard. There was a barbarian. He looks like Conan. He's got a cape. He's fair-chested. He's got a blade. He's battling off these other warriors that are charging him, but there's a kicker. His jaw is made of metal. It has gears. It's like a mechanical jaw, but he's this handsome guy. It's called Iron Jaw. Cool logo, weird name. I registered as, that's a weird name, but I cannot resist this cover to number one. Iron Jaw, number one. So I'm Iron Jaw, okay? I'm I'm Destructor. And my, my, my flight with Atlas has begun. I'm all in. You're giving me Neil Adams covers because covers matter. And Martin Goodman wisely invested big time into these cover guys. And so I've got Neil Adams. I've got Steve Ditko. I've got Rich Buckler, who I'm familiar with. I've got Walt Simonson, who's doing work for DC on the sword and sorcery stuff. And I see him creeping around. I see Walt Simonson. You know, I mean, you wouldn't believe this. Uh, I'm I'm, going to give you some other names that Atlas immediately put to work. and, And you saw their names. And again, you guys, as I've told you, as a kid, I followed the talent. I followed the talent. From 1975 on, I followed the talent. I, I'm 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 skimping over some really great tremendous names. Did Bernie Wrightson ink Steve Ditko? The, yes, the, the the Mr. Swamp thing, Mr. God of comic book art, Mr. Frankenstein. Did Bernie Wrightson ink over Steve Ditko? He most absolutely, most certainly did. Yes. I mean, and he even says, you know what? They were paying me good, and come on, man, it's Steve Ditko. Like, like, what are you gonna do? I mean, again, this is this is Bernie Wrightson. The uh, I, I the, the, this this episode is, is officially so big, we're, we're cutting it into two parts. There is so much uh, after setting the table to, to tell you guys exactly how and when it went down. But let me get to Howard Chaikin. Uh He had been a very noticeable talent. Had had sharp, angular, cool figures, handsome faces. Uh, other 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 names from Atlas, other titles uh, were uh, beyond the Destructor, and beyond Iron Jaw was Wolf the Barbarian, the Brute, Demon Hunter, Blazing Battle Tales, Morlock two thousand one, Hands of the Dragon, Planet of the Vampires, Phoenix. I'm looking at all these. I mean, I love Target, T R G I T T, not like the 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 Human target, spelled different but the same, but and not like the retail target, T-A-R-G-I-T-T, Tiger Man, Savage Combat Tales, Scorpion. So Scorpion is where we are going to, we're going to interact with Mr. Howard Chaikin. And I'll, uh, I'm going to tell you right now, Scorpion is visually identical in every possible way, and this is not the only time that this would occur as we go through this incredible history of Atlas Comics. But, uh, and, and, and trust me, you will be more then slightly entertained uh, throughout the entirety of this share. Scorpion is a title that Howard Chaikin wrote and uh, created, illustrated for Atlas. And the Dominic Fortune book that I recommended to you at the top here, uh, Dominic Fortune and Scorpion are the exact same character. They have the exact same kind of 
leather, brown leather uh, tunic, the black pants, the boots, the side holster, the face is identical. Uh, Howard recalls that the offices of Atlas Seaboard were, um, and it's Atlas slash, again, the comic books just say Atlas on it, but they had to add the Seaboard to the actual corporation in order not to create any legal conflict with the former title of Marvel's lines called Atlas Comics. He says, uh, the Atlas Comics offices were diagonally diagonally across from Marvel on 575 Madison Avenue. He said, look, Goodman was offering, you know, double the page rate. And they wanted uh, this book that I was pitching them, which was a combination of the pulp stuff that I loved, the Shadow, Justice, Doc Savage, Phantom. He says... Uh, this was kind of my signature, my signature interest, my signature kind of contributions at the time. This is what I was into. Uh, he said, uh, "Look, what you need to know, Martin's, you know, Martin Goodman based this company on vengeance. It was, it was he, he was, uh, he was just out to punish Marvel for the poor treatment that they gave his son after this agreement." And he said. Uh, they were just hot and heavy to, to get as many books greenlit as they possibly could. And uh, again, the, the, the publisher or the, the, the guy alongside Larry Lieber was a guy named Jeff Rovin. And uh, Howard says, didn't really like the guy, didn't like working with Rovin. Even in this interview, I can, I can tell you questions, his ethical standards, because Howard says this company built on on a very hot temper was also full of people who lied to us, he said. But uh, he said, look, we got we got paid twice the page rates. And, and he said, did you ever get a royalty? He said, we didn't get a royalty. He says, look, they were, um, you know, they, 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 they talked a good talk about royalties. He said, but there was none of that. The bottom line is they were paying double the rates and that is the biggest impact in Howard Chaikin's mind that Atlas had on the entire business. It, it scared the other companies like you can't keep paying your lousy rates. We're going to revolt and so many of them went to do this book Scorpion. Again, Scorpion, the issues of Scorpion, you can lay them down to Marvel's Dominic Fortune and they're not the only one. Um, Okay. Demon Hunter by Atlas, and this is for next episode, becomes Devil Slayer, okay, for Marvel. Like, other characters jump, because when this falls apart, this falls apart. This was a bright, shining idea. This is Image Comics before Image Comics, except it was created by businessmen recruiting, but the high page rates and the collection of exceptional talent cannot be ignored. It's, it, 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 is, it is a fact that the fan press at the time, the meager fan press, the, the, the comics readers, uh, Jim Steranko's comic book magazines covering the business that he had started they thought wow this is a big deal martin goodman's making big moves he's recruiting top talent he's got you know all these important guys well howard talks about how they came about creating the second issue of scorpion the interviewer tells howard that he believes that scorpion was the best book to come out of atlas seaboard but he said there is sure a lot of characters that were 
uh, not, not all the characters, a lot of talent thanked in the second issue. And he says, look, we were all jamming. He said, uh, you know, I had, uh, he said, I had Walt Simonson, Bernie Wrightson, and Michael Kaluta help me out on Scorpion number two. Now, if you're a student of the comic book world, Bernie Wrightson, one of the greatest illustrators ever, Michael Kaluta, one of the greatest illustrators ever, both of them have had tremendous impact. Michael Kaluta, there is no Art Adams without Michael Kaluta, okay? Uh, there's no Art Adams without Walt Simonson. I mean, the, 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 the entire next generation, Wrightson, Wrightson and Kaluta, Kaluta is part of a collective. Kaluta would get together with uh, Barry Windsor Smith and, and Jeffrey Jones. They had a they had a uh, a studio called Wait for It the Studio. There's a gorgeous book if you can ever get it. It shows all of their each chapter is one of the members of the studio and gives their amazing plates and illustrations, painting, painting, color washes. It's it's brilliant. These guys had really turned the comic book world on the ear. I go uh, so much more into the evolution of Barry Windsor Smith in our Conan, our very first Sword and Sorcery episode that came out about a year, year and a half ago when we started really covering the Sword and Sorcery boom. And of course, Atlas had some Sword and Sorcery books as well because it was so popular. He says, how'd you guys all work together? How did Walt Simonson, Bernie Wrightson, Michael Kaluta contribute to Scorpion 2? He's like, look, man, we were all working in my apartment. Walt, Bernie Wrightson was living downstairs. Walt Simonson lived in the building across the hall. And Michael Kaluta was visiting. He says, we kind of did a, uh, a marathon. Simonson was coming to, back in town after being away for a few days. It was Halloween. He said, I threw a big Halloween party. This is Howard Chaikin. Um, and Bernie Wrightson and Mike Kaluta, we all, he says, he talks about how they all got fairly I intoxicated. And uh, that weekend, they just decided, let's knock this all out together. And they went about uh, inking and working, creating the issue that is Scorpion number two. And I'm going to tell you, Scorpion number two is a fun book to com to a fun comic to look at because you've got you've got all these guys at different different levels of their career. Howard Chaikin still fairly early, but very dynamic, very influential. Walt Simonson still very early, very dynamic, very influential. These four top guys are busting their ass in creating this comic on, on a weekend jam. And, and Howard says it's a weekend jam. We just, we just put it all together in those, the, um, you know, in a jam session, everyone else is helping carry everyone else's ass. And, uh, you know, he, he talks about that. There was a, a discussion that they had called first Fridays. A first Friday was basically work alone, get as much as you can done. Um, and then and then get out and, and have your social gatherings. But but that, that that first week, that first weekend, get as much as you can done. Then as the deadline gets closer, ask more of your friends to jam with you. And eventually, obviously, you've got this these great, uh, you know, products via, you know, you see how much you've done on your own. And then you invite your friends home, invite your friends into your home and, and you finish it. Howard basically felt like, you know. There was, it was a great fly-by-night company. He got paid very well while he was doing it. And when it was over, it was over. But anyone who can uh, look at uh, the Scorpion and believe for any minute that he is not, in fact, Dominic Fortune, Howard wouldn't dismiss it either. The situation went bad. Uh, Howard even says that they, 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 they believe, well, 
because the deadlines were were going poorly. Howard says that Alex Toth, the legendary Alex Toth, informed him, hey, I heard you're off the book. I heard you're off Scorpion. He's like, what do you mean? That's my book. But behind the scenes, Martin Goodman early on was already starting to uh, meddle with all these different talents that were doing the work because he had really seriously got into what he believed a pissing contest with Marvel and wanted to win. And the initial st- sales were were showing that he was lagging far behind, again, in, a, in an industry that was already suffering in regards to sales and distribution. You know, he's introduced this new this new, uh, this new new company. But look, I, I got Planet of the Vampires. I got Iron Wolf. I got Wolf the Barbarian, okay? Larry Hama's Wolf the Barbarian and also art by a, a gentleman named Jim Craig who would go on to do a bunch of stuff over at Marvel in the late 70s. All the while, Martin Goodman is trying to secure licenses. He is talking to the Toho company about getting Godzilla. During this time, Walt Simonson draws a Godzilla story thinking it's got Rodan in it. He thinks this is going to be, they're going to get, they're going to get this license. He does, there, it, he, he claims, Walt says that the art that he did for that Godzilla, when he went back to reclaim it, they said, we, we don't have it. We never had it. He, he knows for a fact, like, that's where it was. They acted dumb. They acted like they didn't receive it. But yes, did Walt Simonson draw a Godzilla story for 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 Atlas under the auspices that they were going to connect and do um, do a Godzilla license? And again, you know, cut to two years later, Marvel did do a Godzilla license with Toho. In the midst of all this, Martin Goodman says, "I want a Hulk knockoff. Call him the Brute." The Brute comes out. the the the, the company goes over and goes under in late. 1975, this company doesn't even get to a two full years, by the way. A lot of impact. I think 65 different issues sit, shipped. But but in and out, in a heartbeat, they launched with eight comics, but he wanted the Brute. He wanted the Brute to be a Hulk knockoff. After he went out of business in the summer of 1976, there was a Brute knockoff called The Brute by George Perez, who was the illustrator. Joe Sinnott inked it. I, 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 it may have been Marv Wolfman. It might have been Len Wein. The writer escapes me now, but The Brute was a Hulk knockoff that appeared in the Fantastic Four. And I think a lot of, because Martin Goodman and his shenanigans pissed off Marvel and they wasted no time. I think, you know, maybe they looked into the Godzilla license because they heard it was in play and he couldn't get it and they moved to secure it. At the same time, there is a Charlton Heston movie. It is one of my favorites. It's called The Omega Man. You know, basically... Uh, everyone, uh, the, the, the people who are left on the Earth are like vampires. They can only move at night. It's a great movie. It's 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 uh, the precursor. There was a precursor to the Omega Man, which starred Vincent Price. It is all based on a novel, um, and and then the the last version that we saw of this was Will Smith's I Am Legend, which was the Omega Man, except not called the Omega Man, but the exact same character, same situation. And uh, so Martin Goodman loved Omega Man, tried to get the license, thought it was too expensive, pivoted. They took all their ideas from the Omega Man and they took a, they 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 created a comic book called Planet of the Vampires which was written by Larry Lieber, drawn by Pat Broderick. There was inks by Terry Austin. Uh, Neil Adams would ink over Pat Broderick on the covers. Um, again, a, a lot of art art guys that you totally dig. Alan Milgram, Steve Skeets, Terry Austin, uh, Bernie Wrightson. Again, Bernie Wrightson's quick... Uh, again, I'll say, I'll say Alan, Mar- Alan, Mar- Alan Milgram, who was doing Captain Marvel at the time. Guardians of the Galaxy, he was, he was doing a lot of work over at Marvel. Roy Thomas heard that he was doing work, and he's like, hey man, you know, 
why don't why don't you think about being loyal to us? And and again, Alan Milgram says, I, I'm taking the Patriots. Like, uh, uh, you know, he said there was absolutely pressure from Marvel to not do work for anybody else, but you could not deny that I'm going to ink on the same amount, put the same amount of ink on a piece of paper, and get fifteen dollars more a page. And if I can do three three a page, you know, you're 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 talking the difference in 1974 of $45 a day to $90 a day. Again, you got Joe Staten who 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 went on to do some great runs on the Hulk, on the Justice Society, on Green Lantern. He worked and drew on a book called The Cougar for Atlas Seaboard. Bernie Wrightson again inked over Steve Ditko on an issue of Morlock 2000, and he said Bernie Wrightson said, "Hey man." They're paying me a lot of money. I'm like, this is Steve Ditko. This is cool. I'm going to get, you know, ink over the guy that created Spider-Man. Uh, you got Frank Springer, who drew the Invaders, who drew, you know, Captain America, was very active at Marvel. He took the the assignments at uh, at Atlas. You got Russ Heath, a, a classic illustrator. There was a ton of talent. Rich Buckler, Ed Hannigan, Larry Hama, Dick Giordano, Neil Adams, Pat Broderick, Howard Chaikin. Uh, Wally Wood. I mean, they were not hurting for big time, massive talent. And so they launched and kids like me bought the books when we could find the books. Did I see an Iron Wolf number one and, and scoop it up? Yes, I did. Was it months until I saw another? Yes, it was. Was Destructor on time? Was Planet of the Vampires, you know, around? Look, Scorpion, I think I got two issues. I was all in. I always wanted more. This was to me the precursor of all the independent company comic companies that were to come. But there is so much more to this Atlas story that we haven't covered. I wanted to share you Howard Shaken again. Also gives you a glimpse into that time of I love the first Fridays method. I love then the you know jamming, having a party, having all your buddies finish the work. I mean, I've talked. It feels like my generation was the last. Eric Larson would ink me. I would ink Jim Lee. Jim Lee would ink me. I would ink Todd McFarlane. Todd McFarlane would ink me. Uh, Wills Portacio would ink Jim. Jim would ink Wills Portacio. We jammed together. We jammed together. We worked on the boards. I think now uh, I would I, I would ink Dan Frager. Dan Frager would ink me. We would uh, we'd all take turns creating art together because we had been that that's what had been modeled to us. Now in this new era of Cintiqs and uh, and and. Uh, all the different drawing platforms, and they're excellent. They they have a, a, a amazing sets of of crazy tools. I feel like Spicoli. My dad's got a great set of, of tools in in uh, in, uh, in 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 Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I can fix it. My dad's got a great set of tools. Okay, Procreate's got a great set of tools. Cintiq's got the Cintiq has a great set of tools. The fo- Photoshop, all of Procreate, they've changed the game. But you got. Walt Simonson, Mike Kaluta, Bernie Wrightson, Howard Chaikin creating comics all together on one page. You have Neil Adams inking guys on interiors and covers at Atlas. You have Neil Adams doing dedicated covers at Atlas. You have Wally Wood, an esteemed genius, inking Steve Ditko, and a genius of comics at Atlas Comics. They had the pieces. They put together a game plan. And when we circle back and finish off Atlas Seaboard, our examination of really what was kind of like the first image comics to have that much talent cross the street. When I say, what did I tell you? 1974, Namor, Fantastic Four 147. Who drew that issue? Rich Buckler. Rich Buckler would go on. He did an extended run on the Fantastic Four. He would go on and then do work for Atlas. So guys who I'm seeing drawing the Fantastic Four are also at the same time 
drawing brand new concepts and, con and characters over at Atlas Comics. They had some of the top guys. When I say Dick Giordano, Dick Giordano was the premier inker and penciler alongside Neil at DC Comics in the late 60s, early 70s. When he penciled and inked himself, it was like akin to Neil Adams. Having him over there doing covers, doing interior stories, doing polishes. Larry Hama, again, some of his early work prior to going to Marvel and becoming a powerhouse is making comics for Atlas Seaboard. This place was loaded. The story is not over, but we have set the table. We will finish this in Atlas Seaboard Comics Part 2. Do not miss out on the Rob Recommends Marvel premiere number 56. The Scorpion stopped being published and a few years later reemerges, no longer named the Scorpion, contributed by Mr. Howard Chaikin of American Flag fame and Dominic Fortune in a, it, it, like, you, there's no even blurring eyes. Dominic Fortune and Scorpion, and people laugh about it. Like, Howard just walked over and said, oh, you think the Scorpion's canceled? I don't think so. Boom, now he's in Marvel. Lives in Marvel. Super cool. So much more to come as we continue to dissect and examine all of this cool history in this very um, interesting, amazing experiment built on giving everybody their artwork back, which they did, They they and they changed the industry in that regard. Atlas giving artwork back put the pressure on Marvel and DC because Atlas was working with top flight creators. The double the page rates changed the game, got people paid more. Atlas was a significant contributor, even if it was a very short um, pub publishing, you know, publishing run. But we're going to get more into it and and look at at some some of the other goings on at Atlas when we revisit this in our very next episode of Rob Observations. Atlas, the Atlas Seaboard story is is one of the great like kind of cautionary tales, and I can't wait to dive into it greater in greater kind of depth with you in the in the in the second chapter of of our exploration of Atlas Comics and how it shook everything up in the in the in the seventies. Again, I was there. I was buying those books, man. You give me Neil Adams covers, you know. You give me Steve Ditko on a new superhero, a cool name like Destructor, Iron Jaw. He's had these books had. Had cool names, Scorpion. I mean, these are these are cool cool books because that we're gonna we're gonna get into some of the, the 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 ideas. I mean, the brute was the start of kind of the the marvelization of the Atlas line, which we're gonna discuss our our next time around. You guys know that on our podcast at the end of every show, I read the super generous reviews that you guys give me. These gener these these reviews are so integral to uh, us standing out, and, and I am so thankful that you guys jump in and are so generous and, uh, and, 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 and so helpful in, uh, in, 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 in shaping kind of the positioning of, of our show, and these reviews, they matter, and the, and the stars, and the rankings, and I'm so thankful. Thank you, you guys, always. And so, uh, let's go to, uh, we're going to read read you this um, very recent five-star uh, review from Habib J. Habib JT. And he says, uh, Rob, another great episode. Five stars. The 10 major influences from The Dark Knight was spot on. One other trope that I wondered if Dark Knight started was the evil Superman trope. You have brought it up in the past, and I always thought about what you said concerning that there are so many evil supermen and media coverage 
You hit it on the nail. Keep up the good work. Hey, that was a fun episode to do. The the, the 10 ways, because man, like there are a lot of great Batman stories, but not, there's, there's not three or four of them that had even a fraction of the impact. Dark Knight was so impactful. So check that episode if you haven't already, the, the 10 ways that Dark Knight changed Batman forever. And and thank you, Habib JT. I, I am so grateful that you posted this and shared it with me. And when you guys leave your reviews of Rob's Observations, I share them at the end of the show. I share them with everybody at the end of the show. I read them. I am so grateful that you guys are so supportive. The word of mouth, the way you guys continue to um, share this show with your friends and the stores that are playing it. Everybody, thank you so much. I am all over social media. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. Simple. It's 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 the name you see in the comics. Rob Liefeld. R-O-B-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. I have a blue check. It tells you it's really me, not some scam artist. Rob Liefeld on Instagram. I read your Twitter. I, I'm sorry. I read your mentions, your messages, your DMs, your comments. Thank you so much for interacting with me in the way that you guys do. I love reaching out and, and, and just connecting with you guys. And Twitter, I am at Robert Liefeld. So you got to go a little further into that name. R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. I've got a blue check. It's great. Um, Again, it's really me. I love... um interacting with you guys, talking to you guys. You guys are so fun and I love talking comics and, and, and media and shows and all the stuff that we're digging. So catch me at Robert Liefeld on Twitter, at Rob Liefeld on Instagram. I have been a part of the WhatNot family. It's WhatNot is an app. It's a collectible app. If you want new uh, tennis shoes, new kicks, if you want new trading card games, if you want uh, sports cards, if you want uh, you know um, playing cards, if you want comic books, toys, Funkos, my comic books, Marvel comic books, all so many categories. Whatnot is the crazy, uh, successful, uh, relevant, the app of this generation in regards to um, buying collectibles. Again, tennis shoes, they got them. Apparel, they got them. You know, uh, Pokemon, they got them. Yu-Gi-Oh, they got them. X-Men, they got them. Deadpool. Funko Pops. I'm there. I'm. I'm. I do my live streams. Streams uh, sometimes twice a week. Uh, look for me. I schedule shows. It'll give you a notification. I'm traveling this week. It may be a little different, but normally we're doing a Saturday show. We're doing a Wednesday show. Those are the, the the days that I try and focus in on. On my live stream, I am giving you signed Funko Pops, signed comic books, sketch art, uh, remarks on comics, the whole uh, the whole variety, the whole. Uh, all, all the all the colors of the rainbow are, are 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 presented in regards to comics, toys, and Funko Pops. So check me out, hit me up. I cannot wait to share them with all of you on whatnot. This Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld podcast has a Facebook page. Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld. It's on Facebook. It's a page. It's a page. Find it, like it, um, comment on it, respond to me. I would love to um, hear from you on that page. I have a group because pages are different than groups. Rob Liefeld, an extreme group. Rob Liefeld, an extreme group is our is our group. Um, we're still young, we're still fresh, but we're adding members every day. Uh, find us, either myself or a gentleman named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A, will click you through. We are the two administrators. That's how you know you're in the right Rob Liefeld group. We share all manner of art. I share sketches. I, I share, I share uh, pencils from old comics, ideas, stories, interviews. It's, it's a free-for-all. All the characters that I've worked on, in, including all the characters that I've created, so it expands, goes to G.I. Joe, it goes to The Shield, it goes to Fantasy Four, Avengers, all the different Captain America, 
um, at 37 years, I've, I've done a lot. I've seen a lot. I've shared a lot. We talk about it um, possibly uh, more, more, more. It's more specified, not quite as in depth, maybe as this podcast. But but whatever subject comes up, I I always try and interact with you guys uh, on, on that group. So look for it, Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group on Facebook. Myself or Terry Sala are the administrators and moderators that will click you through. Uh, thanks for joining me as always. You guys, you know that at the end of every episode, I want to make sure that your mental health, your physical health, your emotional health, and your spiritual health are being addressed. I do it by carving out time for myself specifically, having me time, uh, where I absorb art, really art, stories, uh, streaming, movies, uh, music, comics, and I do it with great food, gourmet tacos. Again, I don't, I'm not doing the, the run-of-the-mill tacos. I like, I like the, I, I was raised this last decade with me and all my food truck buddies, I love the gourmet everything. The gourmet burger, the gourmet bratwurst, the the gourmet tacos. That's what I'm all about. I can't wait to um, dig into a great gourmet taco and eat a comic book and maybe um, uh, wash it all down with a milkshake. And you should too. Have fun. I'm not saying have sugar. Not every day. That's not possible. But, you know, you got you to gotta stimulate those pleasure centers that... The work that we all do is a grind, and we need to take a take a pause and enjoy ourselves and 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 consume art. Go to a museum, look at paintings. I mean, I, this is stuff I've never said before, but it, it it it's it's in there. Hey, maybe take a bike a, a great bike ride with some friends, spend time with family. You guys, just take some me time, have a good time. You know, uh, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I am rooting for all of you, each and every one of you. Please come back. We're going to continue this talk. We will most certainly, absolutely, inevitably, and indubitably talk again real soon.